Welcome to episode 4 of the County Derry Post political podcast. This week we speak to UUP councillor for Ban, Richard Holmes, about the exuberance of youth, the council's perceived finances and making it work as a commercial entity. I'll just start off with the, the easy one that I've given to everybody. Why did you get into politics in the first place? It goes back to when the Anglo Irish Dream was signed in 1985, so I was 13 years of age, but becoming, I suppose, politically aware. I suppose at that stage, even at 13, I grew a sense of betrayal, and I uh, just couldn't understand how how your government could do that to us. started off in Anglo Irish protest marches with my dad. Then when I went to Queen's, actually Peter Weir got me signed up to the Queen's Ulster Unionists and joined the Young Unionists and my local association and got involved in the elections thereafter and ran election campaigns for years and then uh, ran for council back in 2011 and somehow managed to get elected and that's for me since. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Peter Weir there, was he a student at the time? Uh, yes, uh, Peter was chairman of the Queen's Ulster Unionists, so I got through the young unions with uh, Peter and Arlene and various other ones who have two careers in business and given up politics and, and the mayor and the, uh, I suppose, the lower excellence. I suppose people have a certain public perception of those figures. What were they like as students? I suppose every politician at, uh, at that age is young and radical, going to change the world. Uh, obviously, in the case of Arlene and, and Peter, they have gone on to have a major impact in Northern Ireland politics. But you know, at that age, we're all young and keen and want to get involved in things and change the world. So I was no different than anybody else. Mm-hmm. I suppose that energy is, is carried you through as well. Yeah, I suppose it carries something through further than others. It depends what way your career takes you. I've always been happy with running the election campaigns and sort of being the back room. And 2011, just finished up on council. Entirely unexpected, but I absolutely loved every minute of it since. Uh, well, you were elected in, in 2011. And what would you say was your kind of proudest moment or your biggest achievement in local politics? There's there's probably a couple of things. You know, I've, I've spent my career working in, in industry and in, in manufacturing. And one of the things I found difficult in councils when you went in there, there's a great lack of commercial focus. Things would take an eternity to do, cost the earth, and every year they come in to you with a rates pitch to start out in double figures and somehow get down to 5 or 6%. When it came to running things like caravan parks, well, the caravan parks were full, they had a waiting list on them, but we wouldn't put on commercial increases to be able to run the parks more effectively and invest in them. Uh, so I sort of got that change where we went from, you know, let's just do you know, 1% rise or, or something like that to more commercial focus. And I think that's happened in lots of areas across council now. And I suppose the other thing I really, you know, at the end of my time, I look back on it and I think it was good was I got a a Causeway Enterprise Fund set up and that supports is there to support startup businesses with grants of up to ten thousand pounds. And I had worked with uh, an entrepreneur who went on to run a fairly fairly large SME in, in Northern Ireland. I remember him one stage saying that the the difficulty had trying to get the business started and just find I think it was ten thousand pounds needed to start the business. I just thought, you know, if there's something I could do locally to help entrepreneurs and you know there's a, a couple of businesses now running in the local area. Corndale Foods there in the Valley's one of them, making a real impact and you know, I'm a real foodie and I love to see what they've done. And there's another import, Stuart Hope Macaulay, that's got a, a fashion brand going that's you know, featuring in Vogue and GQ America and so on. So some of that money has been useful to help those entrepreneurs get a start and get their businesses going and hopefully we'll see them do fantastic things over the decades ahead. 
And then from the, on the flip side of that, what would you say about the most difficult or the most challenging part of, of your time in council? Certainly, getting the commercial focus brought into council was a major challenge. Um, and I suppose over the last few years, the the PR of our council um, allegations around the financial situation, I would say unsubstantiated allegations that have been made, has created a very toxic atmosphere in council and has lingered on for a few years now. And it's been difficult trying to get uh, to get that dealt with and, and have an atmosphere where we can work and get on with proper council business. Uh, it's just it's, it's just dragged everybody down. You know, when you have the BBC turning up to fill up meetings because you have the same amount of debt that over half of the councils in Northern Ireland have when you're being presented as a financial basket case, it's really, really annoying. Um, and particularly whenever we have done so much to rein in costs in council and hold down rates and improve the effectiveness of services. Some of our services, you know, and lifting's are some of the most cost-effective in Northern Ireland, but yet we have been painted with with, with, with this bin. Uh, sorry, there was some sort of basket case painted with, with with that brush at the moment, and it's just been it's been hard over the last few years trying to fight that, and uh, uh, it just can't seem to get it to go away. Uh, you've actually segwayed into my next question there about that uh, was it was the perception of the council, and is it frustrating? And it clearly is a sense of frustration for you. I think it's one of those things, uh, you know, like I say, people look at their mortgage and think, oh, this is horrific, it's awful debt. Until you realize everybody else in the street has the same mortgage and the same level of debt. And our council is no different to any other. We amalgamated four councils, and after five years, our debt is the same as it was when the four councils were amalgamated. And we're the only council in Northern Ireland that had four councils coming together. We had to bring together the teams from four councils, the systems from four councils, and the debt from four councils. And I think we have managed things very well. We're one of the lowest rates increases in Northern Ireland. We, as I say, have some of the best services in Northern Ireland. And at times, some of those raising concerns don't seem to understand the information that's in front of them. And certainly, I suppose some of the journalists who come up and, and, and featuring this as a major story didn't seem to realise that most of the councils, well, certainly half the councils in Northern Ireland are running debts between 50 and 80 million. But councils run on debts because very little the council does actually generate the profit. You don't charge people to go to a play park, but a play park still costs money to build and maintain. Um, so council borrows, puts the play parks in, uh, you know, they go out and lift bins, you know, bins always cost six figure sums. Um, so councils have to run on debt. It's, it's, it's really the only way because we don't, we don't generate profit. And, and it's all just about managing it, but you know, the, the situation that's been created by a small number of councillors over the last few years has just created a toxic environment. The focus of senior managers has been on trying to manage uh, that coverage and deal with freedom of information requests and audits, etc., etc. Um, and it's it's difficult to get focus on the things that we need to be doing, such as, you know, the, the capital uh, projects we need to be doing and, and you know, managing situations through COVID and so on. We, we did a survey with the County Dairy perception of politics and the engagement and one of the things overall came out that MLAs were less trusted than councillors but looking at the Causeway data it's actually gone the other way do you think that bad publicity has had a huge effect on that? Undoubtedly so you know when you look at the headlines that come through you know the you know that we're you know the financially troubled council you know there's councils in Northern Ireland with greater debt than us and there's councils in Northern Ireland with lower reserves than us but whenever you see these headlines and then you look at the comments through the newspapers for Causeway Coast Unit and so on, you know, people just don't understand and you don't really expect them to but certainly the, 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 
the way the information presented reflects badly on all the pensioners. Apart from the financial side of things, one of the areas was cooperation between councillors. 48% said either one or two out of 10 for that cooperation. And it's something you do pick up on in meetings where they do seem to be quite, and sometimes they're quite hostile. Is that something you find or is that something you think is a problem with the council? I think it has got worse since COVID happened and we've gone remote. You know, previously, you can at least go and sit and, and, and talk. And I found myself numerous times in the canteen with, with representatives from across the political spectrum trying to do deals to get to. You know, I always think politics works better whenever you cross party consensus where you have a win win for all sides. And it's difficult getting that. You know, we're, most of us are remote. There's very few people ever in the chamber now. So you sort of lose those relationships that we had sort of worked hard to build up. The four main parties all sat in uh, workshops for about a day, uh, just going through the finance a couple of years ago, just preparing for rates and looking at where we could where we could make savings, where we could generate additional income to try and hold down rates. And it was a really, really good day, and you know you, you build up good working relationships like that. But unfortunately, at the minute it's certain those days, and then the the toxicity of the financial situation around council and and how it's been represented has not helped. And I suppose for some people, they're not sure what side to jump on in terms of how it's going to go down. People have been hedging their bets. And it sort of got to the stage now in council sometimes you think a bus shelter would go down across community lines. It doesn't make for good governance. And I just, I can't wait for the day when we all go back into the chamber and sort of start building those relationships across the parties again. That's an interesting point you make there about it getting worse from COVID where you can't build those relationships. Do you think is that something that's affecting politics at a higher level as well, where you're, there is that kind of remoteness? I, I don't know. I can only speak for ourselves. Certainly, certainly it would be my feeling that it's, that it's more difficult since, since we started going remote. I just can't speak for the impact that's happened anywhere else. And I suppose to look more recently at the meeting that was held on Tuesday night, um, you had the Hercules Mulligan mm-hmm. motion, which went through to go for a heritage trail. Obviously, it's since emerged that he had kept slaves. I know that the Belfast Telegraph had run a piece today on it. Has the UP on the council changed their position in terms of the trail? Look, it, it will come back up before full council um, in a couple of weeks' time, and at our meeting before that, we'll discuss it and see what we want to do. Slavery is absolutely abhorrent, but you sort of have to get into the view, you know, do you back through and whitewash history and take all these people out of it? You'll mention them. You know, most of the founding fathers in America had slaves. I think perhaps in this day and age, rather than not mentioning it and, and, and striking it from history, it's probably better to educate people and, and, and put them in light to say, you know, this is this man did, but this man also had slaves and, and, and I can already talk about it. So we haven't met to discuss the position yet, um, but, but we will be forthcoming to the council. You also spoke uh, following the Conrad Gallagher presentation. You said you found the language interesting, but there was still that association with, with Republican paramilitaries and yeah. it caused barriers with with unionists. How can the barriers be broken down? How do Irish language speakers genuinely appeal to unionism? It's probably going to be difficult. You know, I did mention there the other night how you know, we all know there's one say that basically Protestants kept the Irish language going. And I think you know the various languages, whether you're looking at Ulster, Scots, Irish, the, the Scots Gaelic, the, the Welsh language, you know, there's so much of an important place in history. Every town land name in Ireland comes from the old Irish. You know, my own uh, area here is Bletter Toy. You know, it's the, I think Bletter Hill is the church in the hill and Bletter Toy is for the, the people who live. So that all comes through. Um, and I think that's fascinating. And it's probably going to take time. I, I think whenever 
union association fain wanting to sort of almost you know, ram this down their throats whenever you see the votes to go to 15% in I think Belfast and Derry you know those things have an impact certain sort of you know it's it's almost being thrust upon unions I have no issue with people learning Irish I've no issue with money going in to keep languages alive I think it's really really important I have no issue with uh, Irish street signs going up where there's demand for them uh, the same with also Scots etc but uh it's just this where it's been seen to be triumphalist and been used to mark our territory. And I think that's the bit that makes it difficult for unionists and that's the bit we'll have to see change. And if Sinn Féin probably didn't push the Irish language so hard, you probably actually find a lot more unionists with a lot more relaxed about it. I'd looked, I'd done a bit of research just coming up and I'd found an interview done in 1996 actually. You said that you wanted the UUP to sever links with the Orange Order. Is that something you still yeah. feel or would that have been exuberance of youth at the time? No, look, look the, Orange, the, the Ulster Unionists obviously did several links at that stage. You know, when, when the Ulster Unionists were set up, it was a council and it brought together numerous bodies. And I think the view in the 1990s was needed to be a proper political party. So uh, that, that stage of were severed, I, I, I don't think it was the wrong thing to do. I think it was part of uh, David Trimble's uh, modernising the Ulster Unionist Party and saying it had to be done at that stage. You also mentioned the line you used in that interview was a line-up of pensioners to Westminster where you were talking about the, the elections. Yeah. If I look at Westminster now and I look at the representatives of unionism in it, is that a, an issue at the minute? And I don't mean for specifically with your party, I mean you have the DUP there, very much the old guard of the DUP. There's always issue in politics knowing when to get out. You always need that churn of younger people coming through. Uh, the parties across the water have done very, very well in the last few years. You know, the average age in, in, in uh, Parliament has, has dropped dramatically and the representation of male and female has changed dramatically over the years as well. There's a lot more females coming into it. I think it, it makes for, for a better Parliament. I suppose in Northern Ireland, you, you, the Ulster Unionist MPs all hung on a long time. Uh, they're eventually succeeded pretty much every case by the DUP. And so they're in the situation now that you know, they've hung on. But... Before the DEP to go through and, re- and renew the Ulster Unionists to challenge for those seats. But I think it's important to get younger people coming through at council level, at level at MLA, because um, you know too much of it is left for older people and retired people to pay off the seats. But uh, you know, experience is great, but the voice of youth and that, I suppose as we all have that radical element where we want to change the world and that enthusiasm. You miss that in politics and it's not there. Locally then, what would your priorities be? As a, I know you mentioned the business side of things. Is there anything in particular you'd be focusing on in this term? I suppose locally here, you know, one of the things getting done is getting the Academy Play Partner in. Uh, that's a very local one. And then Corian Leisure Centre has been festering sore now for about 10 years. The building is 40, 50 years old, uh, needing replaced. And uh, uh, unfortunately, Leisure Centre has cost a huge amount of money, but the other issue we're facing now is that leisure is changing dramatically and we have, you know, we've got the Garfield bike trails opened up here now, which have proven very, very popular. We have various walkways. We're trying to get uh, finances in place for uh, Greenway from Ballymoney to Ballycastle. So there's lots to do in that side of things. And, you know, leisure centres are a challenge. And again, we're a council that was the four legacy councils. We're probably the only council outside Belfast. We'll finish up with four leisure centres once we get something over in Ballycastle. But Corian Leisure Centre, there's a massive challenge there that needs to be resolved. I suppose the other thing for me, it's always trying to keep rates low. Um, and I suppose post-COVID, there's a, there's a problem that we're dealing with, as is every single town across the country and probably in many cases across the world is, is trying to deal with 
the decline of town centres. I suppose our planning over over the last uh, half century has, has, has not helped our town centres unless we come up with something radical there, um, which escaped most people so far. Uh, we're going to have ghost towns left in, in Korean, Nevada, Balamone, etc. Mm-hmm. Particularly after COVID, whenever it changes the landscape. Uh, yeah, I was listening to a podcast recently, maybe been the Economist or Spectator podcast, and it's on his own saying that we have had basically 10 years uh, online development in one year. That's not going to reverse significantly enough to save the high street. I think one thing I actually meant to ask you about earlier was the the amalgamation of the councils. You've been there obviously prior to that. What differences did you notice whenever they did amalgamate? Uh, look, the, the party strengths changed. It went from a, something like you know, 22 out of 26 being unionist uh, to I think it changed to 24 out of 40 at the time. So the dynamics changed. Obviously you're looking at a much wider area. I think our council area is where brought in four councils geographically, it's a fantastic area. You know, from the, the Glen's right around to McGilligan. Um, you just to my mind you couldn't ask for a better a better area. You have a much bigger budget now. I suppose some of the frustrations of that is that we from my mind I've always said if, if you put four companies together, they've delivered economies of scale much faster than we have. But it's the public sector and it doesn't move. It wouldn't be as agile as the private sector would have to be. But we have fantastic opportunities in tourism and I think we, we, we have done some good some good work in that. One of the things we still have to do is improve on the, I suppose the manufacturing front, but certainly the business side of things. I think Mid-Ulster is the largest manufacturing business outside of Belfast. Um, we're sitting up here with some of the lowest average salaries in Northern Ireland, partly because there's so much seasonal work through tourism, partly because a lot of retired people tend to come here. Um, so it, it, it hurts our average income. We'd like to see that raised. To my mind, you know, background in manufacturing, bringing in manufacturing jobs, to the area with higher salaries and I'm working through particularly the pharmaceutical side of things uh, through the enterprise zone would be uh, areas that would, would definitely be a help to us. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, give it a share on social media or subscribe via your podcast player of choice. If you have any questions for future guests, get in touch via email on editor at dairypost.com or contact us via our social media channels.